1: Hi there welcome to this episode of law pod i'm rachel colina lecturer in the school of law and i'm joined here today by dr mary dobbs from the school of law and dr vivian grave from the school of history anthropology philosophy and politics and we are here today to discuss their current research on agriculture the environment and brexit so maybe to begin if each of you could tell us a little bit about your research background and how it was that you became interested in brexit's impact on agriculture and the environment Maybe Mary, if you want to start.
2: Thanks very much, Rachel. So
1: my name is Mary.
2: I'm in the law school, as Rachel was saying. My background is that I did a PhD on the precautionary principle and specifically had a case study on genetically modified crops. And from that, I sort of led into the environment and agriculture more generally. Within the the area of Brexit, I suppose the real thing was that I had the background of EU environmental law, of national environmental law, And suddenly there was a real need to engage with Brexit. It's something that is uh, changing continuously and that there was no getting away from. So we needed to step up and to actually engage with those
0: issues. Okay, so I'm Vivian. Um, I'm in the School of Politics here, History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. And my background, um, how I got into Brexit and the environment is actually also like Mary. Back to my PhD days, um, my doctoral work was on the impact that the United Kingdom had on EU environmental policies, a lot of trying to roll back EU environmental policies. So when there was call for the referendum, I became very interested in what might happen to that body of EU environmental law in the UK once the UK uh, takes back control. So I got involved in work on establishing kind of the influence that the UK had had on the EU environment and vice versa back in twenty early 2016, late 2015. And I've been working on Brexit and the environment ever since.
1: So could you then maybe tell us a little bit about what your research is at the moment and what you're looking at in the context of Brexit?
0: Okay, so I'm the co-chair of Brexit and Environment, which is an ESRC funded um, research network Bringing together academics from across the UK, looking at all the different ways Brexit can impact the environment, both in the UK and in the EU, and within that, uh, we've got so we've got colleagues looking at all four nations, and I'm leading the work on the impact on Northern Ireland. Um, and because I worked on agriculture before, I also do a bit of the kind of impact of Brexit on agriculture, but really from an agri-environment point of view more than generally. So mine is somewhat similar.
2: Um, The two of us, Vivian and myself, have both been working a lot with academics based in Northern Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, and across GB. And we're also working with a lot of stakeholders. So some of my research is, again, the agricultural, sort of agri-environmental, and I'm working with a colleague called Ludovine Petitin in Cardiff, and we're writing a book on Brexit and agriculture. Uh, And then Vivian, myself, and again with Ludovine, we've done parliamentary submissions in relation to this, and uh, actually Vivian and myself were before the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee giving oral evidence on this alongside someone from the Ulster Farmers Union as well. And then on the more general environmental side, we, Vivian and I went and ran a workshop in July for stakeholders along with Nature Mat- Matters Northern Ireland the Northern Ireland Environmental Link with a range of stakeholders, environmental NGOs, individuals from DERA, the Department of Agriculture and Environmental and Rural Affairs in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland office and industry and the like. And it was really to try and help them develop submissions for consultations. And that's, I suppose, what we're really trying to do, is to try and engage with people and facilitate their development. So we're trying to help with policy ourselves a little, but also to try and help others... Go and step up and see what's going to happen with Brexit and try and react to that and provide an advance especially as we don't have a government in, in situ at the moment in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I
0: think just to add to that, I think there's major challenges for the environment across the UK uh, through Brexit and for agriculture but these challenges are especially big in Northern Ireland because you have of course a border, so you have different environmental challenges there, that the environment does not respect borders. So that means if we want to tackle shared environmental challenges, we're going to need continued north-south cooperation. But there's also the absence of government, which means that lots of this preparation for Brexit Day, lots of this planning for no-deal Brexit is really impaired by the lack of a political executive. And finally, there's the fact that Northern Ireland is for a long time has been the dirty corner of the uk and of europe has really doesn't really have a good environmental status um and so it's just we're starting from a lower place and we have just a huge challenge ahead
1: yeah and you said there you know a little bit about what's special about northern ireland but i wonder if it's worth taking a step back for a second and thinking about how Brexit is likely to impact on environment and the agriculture in the UK more broadly. So, more generally, with the,
2: just from the environmental perspective, firstly, or for both actually in, in agriculture and environment, they're both areas where the EU, Westminster and the four jurisdictions, whether it be in Stormont or in Scotland or Wales or in England itself, they all share these policy-making powers, the law-making powers. A lot of this has been developed therefore at the EU level and now the the challenge is that these powers are being returned within the UK but who's going to be going and taking those powers and making the law? How will that law develop? Will it be in parallel with the sort of the standards at the EU level or will it be a completely different route? And Because of this, we're needing to do a sort of patch job initially, because there's so much law, it's so complicated. So there's a thing called the EU Withdrawal Act, whereby the UK as a whole has said, right, we will do a patch job temporarily and we'll try and make sure that all the law is in place and we can continue on as normal. It's much more complicated than that, but that's the the basic element. But even within that, there are going to be gaps in the law, there are going to be gaps in governance about we won't have the European Commission working anymore, we're going to lose out on the European Court of Justice. So whilst we will maintain the sort of core bulk of the law for the main part, the overall running of it, the governance of it, how it operates, how it's implemented, is going to be changed. And from an environmental perspective, it essentially is going to be undermined and weakened quite substantially. And then it is again complicated with the agriculture side, but maybe Vivian would
0: like to... I think, I mean, the challenge we face is from solving these little gaps into potentially just not having the right tools to measure water quality to agreeing policy across between four governments that are not trusting each other anymore. So it's from the very minute regulatory side to full-blown constitutional crisis. And, it's, and the environment is kind of stuck and stretched between these two. And it's very, very difficult to see way through because right now, as Mary was saying, we have this EU withdrawal act, but Scotland um, pushed forward its own continuity bill. And now you've got a Supreme Court um, case pending on whether that will be struck down or not. And until that is resolved, Scotland is not really engaging into any of the discussions around how powers will be shared because... They don't think that Westminster is doing it in a proper way. But, you know, March 2019 is really around the corner. So we really risk um, having perhaps a deal with the EU, but actually no deal between the four nations. So have this kind of domestic no deal Brexit, where there's actually nothing in place to make sure we keep these policies working well. Because it's not just about the policy, as Mary was stressing, it's about governance. It's about if you've got... Um, air pollution in England impacting people in Scotland, is there some regulatory tools and governance tools to make sure that Scotland can, you know, take England to court, for example? And that's just the basic starting
2: point. There's also the difficulty that even if the EU Withdrawal Act works for everything and it goes and does that patch job, the environment is continuously changing. Our understanding of our environmental process is continuously developing. The law needs to evolve and will that happen in the future? What standards will we try and achieve? We don't have the same resources that are shared across the whole EU. And specifically then in Northern Ireland, we don't have the same resources even compared to Westminster. And we have no government in situ at the moment. So there are so many challenges. They're shared for other areas across the whole of society. But the environment is one where it is very important and it is being hit particularly hard here.
1: Is there any potential for Brexit to provide an opportunity for strengthening environmental protections and and what would need to happen for something like that to come to fruition?
0: So I think the starting point on that is, if you look at EU treaties, um, every member state has the right to go beyond what's already there in terms of EU environmental policy. EU environmental policy is our baseline. So nothing was preventing the UK to be more ambitious than the rest of the EU, before the referendum but you know we do have um with one after the 2017 election with michael gove coming into defra he um has definitely been much more ambitious about the environment than um his predecessor andrea letson was um calling for a green brexit looking at how agriculture and the environment could you know be like the way that you really sell Brexit to the people. You have a 25-year environmental plan for England, the first environmental bill in like 25 years in Westminster. So it does look that Brexit has, in a way, brought the environment on the agenda much more than it had been for a long time. So there could be potential, but the problem is moving from beyond the kind of broad principles and nice sound bites and looking at the detail that is proposed there. And lots of that detail is missing. Um, So first, it's England only. So it's not really a green Brexit, it's a green England after Brexit. Second, a lot of it is just objectives that are not legally binding. And so you take EU environmental law that was all legally binding, and you replace it by political objectives. Now, if you have politically ambitious government when it comes to the environment, that might be enough. But You know, EU law was there to also hold governments that don't care about the environment to account. And we're going to risk losing that. And
1: you mentioned earlier about Northern Ireland being the dirty corner. Could you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about that and what the risks are there?
2: So, Kira Brennan, who actually was a PhD student in Queen's before, and she's a lecturer in Newcastle, and, and she's been working with us in this context as well. So, she was part of the workshop with the stakeholders, and we're currently working on an article together. She has written extensively on this and has done numerous investigations into her thesis in relation to this, alongside individuals like Sharon Turner, who was a professor in Queen's before, Ray Purdy, and a number of other individuals. And essentially Northern Ireland, much like the Republic of Ireland, I will put the hands up there as well, have a very poor history of compliance with environmental law. So firstly, the environmental law wasn't being transposed. That was There was a major deficit in that field. And it was really only because of the threat of fines uh, from the EU, essentially via the Commission and the Court of Justice, that Northern Ireland started to really go and transpose a lot of that law. But even with the transposition, and there's still a couple of areas maybe where it could be improved still, but even following transposition, there are issues as regards implementation and enforcement. Now, those are issues that are present across the rest of the EU member states as well. But it is something that the the long history within Northern Ireland of environmental compliance takes a lot more to come back from. There's also the fact that because of the troubles, that there was a larger focus on the sort of more... Urgent, imminent political and human right issues, and therefore the environment took a bit of a back seat um, on on policy focus, but also as regards the money and resources that could be put into it.
1: From what you're saying there, it's it's clear why it's important for you to engage with non academics and policymakers. But you're also talking about you know making parliamentary submissions and appearing uh, before various committees. What do you think it is about your research that has attracted interest from policymakers?
0: I think I mean Brexit is changing everything right from every policy is impacted, so it's kind of all hands on deck, I think among people in low schools and uh, school of politics across the country, and it should be it's a critical moment, and as academia, I mean we have to be there. Um, Now, on the environment and agriculture especially, because it's one of these areas that is both devolved and heavily Europeanized, that means the devolved governments really have to find solutions and may end up with much more power after Brexit or power constrained in different ways. We're not sure yet, but I think that's also why in places like Northern Ireland, but also our colleagues in Cardiff or Edinburgh have been very active as well. Because there's just so much interest. These are powers that are critical, uh, agriculture and the environment, for all of the devolved administrations.
2: And I think that part of it, it isn't necessarily that we ourselves are the important individuals in this. It's that because environment and agricultural issues, they there are broad elements that... Uh, sort of cross the whole, sort of, the national and the global levels. But they're very much specialised and unique within specific indiv- areas as well. So we have the benefit that we both have gone and looked at European environmental and agriculture issues, but we've also looked at it more localised. So you need groups of individuals from all of the different areas who are able to go and say... We understand the European, we understand the global, but here's why it's different for our specific area as well. And we need to have a differentiated approach. So we need to fit within a more common framework, but we also need to have that differentiated approach. And that, I think, is what we're being able to use our sort of more independent sort of objective position as academics who aren't in a specific stakeholder group to bring people together and have that localised approach and then go and feed it into the broader, more sort of either within Westminster or even at the European level as appropriate.
1: And, you know, in the debate in the lead up to Brexit, there really was this characterization of experts as having no use anymore and we were going to reject experts and then you see that continuing in this post Brexit environment where people who try and adopt a critical perspective on Brexit are kind of dismissed as room owners or biased. Have you encountered that kind of scepticism and has that had an influence on your work and your engagement with stakeholders?
0: Definitely. I think we have um, – there's also the fact, I mean, I'm French, so I'm not – I didn't vote in the referendum. So, at least I can say, you know, I can't say I voted for remain or I voted for leave because I didn't vote. So, at least on that, I think I'm I'm uh, on safer ground, I guess, than some of my colleagues. The, I think any kind of expertise is questioned in Brexit. I think uh, around – especially because I've done EU policies with lots of colleagues who got EU funding for this – and there's been lots, you know, in the press, by politicians, by certain groups in general, just saying, you know, if you've received any money from the EU, that means you're tainted. That means we can't trust you. Um, I think that's just, that's a very odd assumption to make. And I think, of course, that, you know, if just receiving EU money meant you'd vote in favor of the EU, all farmers across the UK would have voted for Remain. So it obviously doesn't make sense. Um, I think it does make it more... We have to be more cautious. I know of quite a few, um, it's usually female colleagues also, that have had terrible experience online by engaging with Brexit and have you know left Twitter and have not doing any public-facing things anymore. We need to be careful about not silencing this voice. But that's kind of the UK-wide um, picture. In Northern Ireland, actually, I haven't had any of that. Um, I found stakeholders here from a variety of perspectives, all sides of referendum, just interested in making sure that Northern Ireland gets a good deal out of this, Um, you know, that it still gets, it works, that farmers in Northern Ireland are not left behind and that the environment gets better. So it's a much more supportive environment.
2: So I'm probably from the other side then where I did have a vote and I did vote and I voted to go and remain in the EU. But I think that there is something that comes with being an academic where we learn always that you need to acknowledge our own biases and that you take a step back from that and then go and say, well, what am I trying to do in my role here? And my role for the main part is trying to facilitate conversations and to provide objective critique. We have issues every decision that is made in our society will always create issues. There's a nickname a colleague gives me of the problem or trouble. Trouble is the normal nickname because I like identifying problems and finding ways to go and resolve those. And Brexit has potential to go and work well, depending on what approaches are taken to it. It also has the potential to go and basically risk a race to the bottom in for the environmental protection, but also for agricultural production in Northern Ireland. Like It is heavily threatened. As the farmers will tell you themselves as well, they are very concerned. And the ideas that both Vivian and myself have been doing is trying to get people to come together to collaborate, realize that we provide some expertise, but the individuals at the coalface also provide their expertise as well, that there are many more stakeholders who are involved. They all have their own voice, bring them in together, come together and see what the issues are and what way we can come together to work and create positive solutions for everybody involved. So yes, we all have biases, But that doesn't mean that we can't go and address those and create something more positive.
1: You were saying at the start that Brexit has really brought your research into this sharp focus and has given you this ability, or maybe not ability, but this platform to really engage in policy. If Brexit didn't happen, you know, say it turned to people's vote and we decide that this was a bad idea after all, you know, what what would be the relevance of your research then? Well...
2: There's one thing that I'm going to say initially, which is that Vivian and I are working with uh, some other colleagues as well on developing an article. And one of the the premises of, we were sort of going, Brexit has brought the highlight, it has put the spotlight on environmental governance issues in Northern Ireland. And within that, also the fact that we have no government in situ at the moment. And we, we haven't had a government for about a year and a half at this stage, but this has happened before. And it's going to probably happen again, and there's continuous environmental governance issues in Northern Ireland. So whilst it's sort of brought a focus for us and it's driven us and it's made us engage with these people, that has also led to us having a broader community within the grassroots, but also sort of going, we need to do something for the long term for environmental governance in Northern Ireland to make sure that something can be done to go and protect the environment, to go and drive force, sort of drive forward policies and implementation when we don't have a government again because let's be honest that's going to happen again irrespective of what happens with brexit
0: on a very practical level if brexit was stopped tomorrow i'd get more actual research done and publications (laughs) and you know so my career might actually benefit from brexit stopping but (laughs) i agree um you know i think it's just because it is a critical moment so we have to be there we have to do this parliamentary work and all of that and it's a fantastic opportunity, but it's putting a huge strain on us in terms of, you know, the amount of time we can spend on this and we can't cover everything. Um, But beyond the precise case of Northern Ireland, that tension between, you know, taking back control, having full sovereignty and the need to cooperate internationally uh, to solve global crises like environment, climate change, it's not going to go anywhere. So it might take another form than Brexit, but, you know, the fact that Trump... Uh, left to Paris agreement on climate change shows that you know these tensions exist elsewhere. And so the work we're doing now, the thinking we're doing around Brexit and the need for common frameworks and cooperation, we should be able to apply it elsewhere as well. It does tend to be
2: quite depressing, but I have to admit that one of the things that we've really enjoyed is the stakeholder groups where you get all the industry and the environmental NGOs and civil service and like all coming together and actually coming forward with solutions. And they're not going to be perfect but it is also something to sort of draw on and go, we have sort of like a draft sort of sample or a previous scenario we can look to and go, this has worked. Like this actually works to get people together. We don't always have to be in conflict. So it's kind of nice from that perspective too.
1: And you're talking about the, the personal strain there. I can't imagine it's easy to research something that changes all the time. What kind of <sighs> challenges do you encounter with that?
2: My hair is going greyer. Um, It's infuriating. It's infuriating from just a general human perspective, as in, you know, we all want certainty. Everyone in society wants certainty. We look at the politicians and go, what are you doing now? But from a research perspective, I mean, it's a challenge. In some ways, it makes it more interesting for those people who are slightly sadistic. Um, But... It's so difficult because research takes time, publishing takes time. So if we're trying to get those out, we have to be ready to change and you have to put things in the conditional. And the book that I mentioned earlier on Brexit and agriculture, we've sort of pushed back the deadline a little bit because we're there going, if we write now, then we have to put in, if this happens, then that. If this happens, then that. And everything becomes too conditional. So it, it's extremely challenging for that.
0: Yeah, I think it is. Um, it is definitely very challenging. But that's also why it's nice to have the opportunity to, you know, do some of, some policy briefs, blog posts, so that we make sure that we engage with things as it come along. You put your good ideas out there quite quickly. And if the publication, academic publication process takes ages, well, at least, you know, you've contributed directly, in a different time schedule. It is it is extremely infuriating, but, you know, you deal with it. And I'm starting teaching Brexit, which is also quite interesting in terms of teaching something that changes all the time.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, maybe a final thought then. If you could have your way, what would environmental governance in Northern Ireland look like? Ideal scenario.
2: Ideal scenario, I, I think... For me, you need to have the multi-level, and I don't know how, how much of a multi-level governance system that you want. I, I quite like that with the EU currently, it's spread over three levels. With If there's a hard Brexit, that's not going to be happening, but there's still an international level. But it needs to have the powers shared out. It needs to be one that's very cooperative. It's one that's collaborative. It, it addresses the cross-border issues. But the, the the multi-level and the cross-border and the collaborative element is not just about creating policies but it's also about holding people accountable because if we leave it just to Northern Ireland and just Northern Ireland government we've seen the poor environmental history we've seen that they only do things sometimes when there's a threat of fines and that's why we need to hold each other to high standards and we need to
0: have a way to try and make sure that people comply with that and enforce it as well. I think you can still get three levels I think one of the we can talk about local government a bit more as well. One of the reasons why not much is happening is that actually local government in Northern Ireland is very much weaker than in other parts of the UK. You know, So you have more power there. Some of the decisions would still be taken. Um, I think you need UK-wide frameworks in terms of avoiding a race um, to the bottom, um, in terms of sharing expertise, because Northern Ireland, I mean, it's such a small place... You can't create your own environmental agency, your chemical agency. You know, you need to, if you cannot be part of the EU one, at least be part of a UK-wide one. Um, but UK-wide has to stop meaning Westminster set. It has to be four nations coming together, agreeing on um, on policy arrangements and having a representation from these four nations. So basically a federal UK. I'm going to be even more ambitious with one final thing, which is
2: relating to the the article that we're working on and the workshop. One of the things that we were talking about was the environmental principles that was in the DEFRA proposal, Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs proposal from England. And they had suggested we'll, we'll adopt some of the environmental principles and we'll have a duty on the ministers to have regard to. So one of the things I would love to do would be have an actual environmental charter. Go true fundamental rights and obligations and principles and like have that as the main state underlying it and have that across the whole of the UK um, to to really just underpin environmental law and policy.
0: Okay, you said the top environmental charters and bottom-up, much more access to environmental rights and access to justice for the environment, make it much easier for regular citizens and groups to uh, challenge laws on environmental grounds.
1: Well, where could people that are listening that want to learn more about this find your work?
0: Okay, so you can go to brexitenvironment.co.uk where we have all the work from the many co-highs across uh, the UK for the project and where we host as well. It's more of a hub for interesting work on, a, on agriculture, Brexit and the environment. So lots of the work that Mary and I have been doing. The the resources that Vivian was talking about are the most
2: accessible ones just and they're a broader audience. We obviously have our own specialised publications as well and if people want to go look at those, they're going to be available initially via the Queen's website for Pure if you just look for them the two of us Um, but we're going to be continuously basically putting up submissions and blog posts and policy papers and they'll be on the brexit and environment page accessible through that in particular do you tweet yes (laughs) there is no escaping twitter but uh it it comes in uh, flurries every now and again when there are things but yeah we we try and keep on track vivian in
0: particular i think yeah i spent too much time on twitter where can (laughs) we find you on twitter Okay, you can find me at uh, V Gravy, so V G R A V E Y.
2: And I think my one is at M Dobbs26, very original, M D O B B S 26.
1: Okay, Mary Dobbs and Vivian Gravy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very thank much, you. Rachel. You have been listening to Law Pods, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Rachel Colleen and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and we are funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thank you to Dr. Mary Dobbs and Dr. Viviane Gravy for being guests on this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at QUB LawPod. And for more information, you can also visit our website, www.lawpod.org. Please have a look at the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen. This was LawPod.